Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us here at Fearless Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and I'm so excited today. I have Dr. Steve Hodges, who is a pediatric urologist at the Wake Forest University, who has published several books on bedwetting. Um, he has a website called bedwettinginaction.com and primarily specializes in that. So I'm so happy that you're joining us today. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to get into this because I think that this is something that a lot of parents really are concerned about and struggle with. So um, tell me, um, as it relates to bedwetting accidents and toileting trouble, what do you think is causing some of this? So um, thanks start by saying that, you know, this is, you can find a lot of different um, opinions online. That's, that's the tough part. I think the internet's been really good at opening up information to people, but it's been hard to kind of tease through what's real or legitimate. And then even in all legitimate sources, if you were speaking to just pediatricians or pediatrologists, there's some debate. I, of course, think I'm right, but I think that I can make a good case for it. And so in our field, they will put bedwetting in one category. We call it, um, you may know this, obviously, monosymptomatic nocturnal enuresis or bedwetting with no other symptoms. And they'll keep that distinct from no wetting while awake with bedwetting or having poop accidents, uh, we'll call it like that. And I think it's all a gradation. I think that there are rare cases where some people can have accidents while awake and not while asleep, and we can get into why I think that happens. But in general, if your bladder is being more overactive, meaning if your bladder is squeezing when it shouldn't, just a tiny bit of that can have you uh, wetting yourself while sleeping because you're unconscious, you can't wake up and get to the bathroom. If that progresses and gets more overactive, then you might have a child that's running to the bathroom during daytime while awake. Um, and then obviously they can have accidents where they pee on themselves while awake. And then as that progresses, and we'll explain, you can actually get poop accidents where you poop on yourself. And our research points to the fact that um, children develop that bladder overactivity as a result of basically delaying pooping. Um, the colon is not designed uh, to kind of hold poop. It's supposed to kind of move it through and let it out. If you pile up a bunch of poop at the end of the colon, which a lot of kids do, it gives the bladder hiccups, for lack of a better term, and um, it starts having accidents. And the trickier part of that is that not everyone. Other people have genes that um, makes the bladder very susceptible to that. So uh, it gets a little bit more complicated than just not pooping, but that's the basic idea. So the big bottom line is that a child being constipated is really probably the trigger for the onset of maybe the bedwetting or the accidents at school or whatever else, um, whenever else there's an accident. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, and I think uh, it gets even trickier in terms of using the word constipation because it's such a, everyone defines that differently. So I think, um, that's what I use too, because it's uh, it's the simplest term. But what we're really saying, because a lot of parents say, well, my kids are not constipated. They poop every day. What I would say is uh, if your child's putting off pooping at all, 
um, then they probably have this problem. And if and a better way to look at it is if a, if a child's having accidents, they have something going on, right? It's not like normal to be being a proven on yourself. So if, I wouldn't ignore it. That's the, my main message: don't ignore accidents. Don't wait for kids to outgrow them. If you have a child that's potty trained, that's having accidents, get them evaluated. You more than likely find a problem. It might be the most common cause, which is the poop issue. It might be something more um, more significant, like a, a neurologic disorder or an anatomic problem. And all that gets ignored if you just say, well, you know, accidents are normal. So that's been a difficult part on practice is getting parents and even other physicians to kind of act on incontinence. Because a lot of doctors say, well, you know, it's normal to wet the bed till five or six or seven or whatever. But we believe that it's never normal. And I think we have good evidence that we're right. So if a child is potty trained and then suddenly they revert, let's say in school, to piddling um, or to having accidents, um, do the same rules apply? Does it come back to constipation for you or potentially a more serious problem like a neurologic disorder? Um, how do you work that particular symptom out? Yeah, so I, statistically speaking, it's most likely the constipation issues. So I, you know, there's lots of different causes we learn about, um, but when you really um, dilute, distill them down to things you see, um, it's either neurologic, and so I work that up. I'll, if a kid comes in the office with an accident, I'll take a look at their spinal cord, you know. And if their spinal cord appears normal, and, you know, we know how to look at that. Um, but typically speaking, um, your gluteal cleft, or what you call butt crack, should be straight up and down. Go straight to the spine. There should be no dimples or hairy patches or anything funny there. And if that's all normal, then they're usually neurologically normal. And then there's one other condition in boys that can cause it. It's an anatomic blockage. Uh, in the urethra called uh, urethral valves and they usually come with really worsening problems they'll get like a worsening accidents they'll get infections and so a simple test like an ultrasound um, which most doctors get um, can rule that out so once i've ruled out the um, neurologic and the anatomic issues then um, it's almost always uh, the poop and i'll take an x-ray and, and usually document that right and people are pretty backed up i mean i would say most parents believe that their child is not constipated. Um, I think I've seen that as a general rule. Oh, no, my child poops every day. They ask their kid, oh, do you go to the bathroom every day? Yeah, yeah, I poop every day. So how are you able to tell a parent to make, like, signs and symptoms to look for for constipation? Yes, we have a really good resource uh, on our website, uh, bedwettingandaccidents.com, which has, like, the signs of constipation. Um, I, I, I usually ask, you know, the family, uh, are the people okay? And sometimes I get lucky and say, yeah, you know, the kid will, or the mom assumes they poop every day, and then the child says, I don't poop every day. You know, I poop every so often. So then I have a good end to get the topic started. But in the, if, if everyone there says um, we poop completely normally, I think even if I give them possible signs, I, I'm not going to convince them. So I get an x-ray, and then we look at the x-ray together, and it, and then they always feel awful. Like, oh, goodness, I didn't know they were that full. Cause, it, it, it's pretty impressive but some signs that we see that might not be typical or you know large bowel movements if you have really really large bowel movements which is the most common one we see then that's not normal so that means you've been withholding it and you're kind of letting out this huge you're delivering a baby basically <laughs> and then um yeah multiple small bowel movements you know that's just letting a little bit off at a time um, um sometimes intermittent diarrhea and constipation where you're having a hard ball and then loose stool which kind of leaking around uh, belly pain all these signs that, um, I remember I had a mom say, you know, my, my child 
I know when they need to poop because they said a tummy hurts. I'm like, that's like way too late. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you should be feeling the urge to poop, not having a distension of your whole bowel that makes you feel sick. So if you really get deep in the conversation, I think you can, you can at least my patients, I can tell, you know, okay, they, they have these symptoms, I can convince them. But if I can't, I, I just get the x-ray because it's easy enough and it, it helps everyone feel like they're on the same page. Okay, great. And what do you feel like is contributing to this? I mean, because bedwetting is pretty common, uh, you know, at this point, um, or having accidents. What do you think is contributing to just say the constipation since that's what's you think is the big common trigger for this and what the research has suggested. So um, what do you believe is the reason that we have such an epidemic of constipation? You know, my, my thoughts have kind of evolved on this. And I think that, I think modern society in general is like not conducive to kids pooping because um, like a lot of processed foods, obviously low fiber content. So structured environment where they're like enclosed, um, and what I mean by that is, like, if you lived, I don't know, thousands of years ago, you would just be out in the, I don't know, in the fields naked, and you would be eating um, whatever whole foods that promote, and you would have no reason to not poop. So I think it's a combination of just uh, kind of restrictive bathroom policies, maybe early training, because kids, you know, they learn to use their sphincter more, and they don't know why they're using it. They just know they can't let stuff out. Um, but honestly, I think it comes down to genetics and uh, personality. Like uh, some kids are more prone to constipation than others, even on a good diet. Some people are, are anal retentive, for lack of a better term, and they have that personality trait. And I think it's just like an evolutionary kind of malfunction. You know, we're the only animals smart enough to put off pooping. I think I don't think any other animal thinks of it, and um, it's a it's a problem. We're too smart for our own good. Right. I think um, you mentioned something earlier. I mean, and I totally agree with you. I think our diet is really a huge problem. And I think probably the structured school schedule, but you also mentioned potty training maybe too early. Um, what's a, what's a, what age range should parents really start to do that? Because I, I feel like parents really want to start early and get their kids ready for preschool or school to be potty trained. And they feel a lot of pressure to do that. So do you have recommendations of when a good window is to start to do that? Yeah, and I'm of two minds to this. One is that I, 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 all the problems I see are, are happen after potty training, right? And they, and they're ha and they happen as a, as a result of a child holding or delaying too much. So to me, you know, potty training is a bad thing. So I would put it off as far as I could. Um, on the other hand, though, a lot of kids can get trained and withhold, and if they don't have the right genes, then they do fine, right? Like genetically speaking, they're not going to have accidents, even though they may not feel great if they're full of poop. Um, so I'm not too dogmatic about it anymore, but I do think that the child has to know kind of what they're doing and uh, be on board because um, it's easy to teach a very young infant to kind of just withhold, but that's very different than learning to go when you need to in a timely fashion. So in general, I think between the ages of three and four is the ideal time because you can kind of communicate a little bit. They know what's going on. They know they need to go. And then it becomes kind of socially an issue if you're four and not going to the bathroom. Um, I know a lot of preschools will limit access for three-year-olds, and, and I, I think that's wrong. I think because a lot of kids aren't trained at three, and, and, they're, and they're healthy and normal. So I, I think most kids, I say, okay, maybe at three, start introducing it. If they're not trained by four, that's a problem, but it probably takes care of itself in that year. 
And I would, as a mom, you know, be pretty um, proactive in terms of defending that. You know, because I'm sure, you know, if, if a school's not letting you go there, you, they probably can be convinced to allow it for a three-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Um, and you also talked about, we're talking about constipation, but is this really an IBS issue? Because you've talked about diarrhea, constipation. Is this like basically IBS with constipation or irritable bowel with constipation primarily is what you're seeing with this? Or is this just straight, these kids don't have time to go to the bathroom. This is not a syndrome. It's just they need to be given more time and more fiber. That's actually very interesting because I think that a lot of older patients with IBS probably had the problem I'm describing as infants or children and then it never got addressed. And so that's why they have IBS. So I think the, the colon, the end of the colon, the rectum starts off at a normal size um, and it's a sensing organ. And if it was working normally, it would fill with poop. You would feel that and you would go poop, right? Because there'd be no reason not to. You would just let it out. But since um, the patients we see are so prone to kind of withholding, so then they turn the rectum into kind of a storage organ. They have poop stored at the end of the colon. The um, ability of that to sense fullness then is, is decreased because it can only stretch so much. And the ability to squeeze to empty is decreased because it's so stretched out. So then you have this hard poop kind of piled in here. So if there's softer stuff going by, that might come out easier. But then if it's hard, you have to strain to get it out. So I do think that um, it's basically a, um, a creation, a behavioral problem at the beginning that leads to physiologic problem that then can present later as IBS. And so, um, and most of the time, there's nothing else going on. There's no food allergy. There's no issues. It's just that if the child had pooped on time, they would be fine. They didn't. So then you need to restore um, normal function by emptying it out. And yeah, absolutely. And if this doesn't, if this problem doesn't get addressed um, when they're young, what long-term ramifications can um, these patients expect to see potentially as adults if this doesn't get straightened out? Yes, that's, that's uh, going to be a little bit speculative, but we know that um, most accidents go away eventually, right? And I think that's part of the reason why physicians are less likely to treat wedding, because they say, well, you know, if you just wait long enough, it goes away. Um, and that is, that is true. About 25% uh, of five-year-olds have accidents, and then it gets better, and it gets better pretty rapidly till the age of five, and then, but then it gets better about 15% a year just for bedwetting. So it's a little bit slower. So you could have a lot of older kids still having accents. So that's one reason to treat it. Um, the other reason to treat it is we don't know really specifically what this hugely dilated colon would do to somebody as an adult. We knew it causes uh, can cause voidness function in adults, so issues with bladder control even in later ages. That's been that's been proven scientifically. Um, I have my own theory about IBS, um, pain with uh, intercourse or interstitial cystitis, a lot of other urologic conditions we see. That deal with uh, pelvic floor dysfunction uh, can be more prevalent. So and I, I just think in general, we can't define specifically if you're going to have that problem or not. But in general, you know, you want the body to be working like it's intended to kind of work like it's supposed to. And so to have a, a hugely dilated colon can't be a good thing, you know, long term, you want it to be working um, like it was designed. Yeah, absolutely. And do you see um, anything with pathogenic bacteria? Do you see anything with parasites, fungal overgrowth? Do you see any of that um, as a, a contributor um, to potentially the constipation, aka the IBS? Um, do you see any of that in these patients? Well, I'd say that a couple things. So to start it off, 
when kids get withholding started, uh, so early on, it's either like with changes in diet, so if they're going from formula to milk or um, formula to solids or introducing something as rice cereal, so changing the consistency of the poop. But um, also, it's common after diarrheal illness. So if you have a diarrhea, so if you regular poops and you get diarrhea and then it gets firm, they tend to have that happen. And also after antibiotics. So early on, if a kid gets some antibiotics, it kind of um, disrupts their bowel. Um, maybe their microbiome or whatever gives them some disturbed um, bowel movement like diarrhea. And then when they get firm again, it can present itself. So, so on, the, on the front side, I think disrupting that can cause the problems to start. And then if you withhold chronically and you get kind of poop piled up in your rectum, that's been proven to change the microbiome of the, of the poop and to make it actually more virulent for UTIs. So the kind of stuff that lives there is the kind that's going to cause um, UTIs more aggressively. And, that, and we definitely see more UTIs than girls that have uh, poop withholding. So I think on both sides. And that's one debate we get into with um, a lot of doctors and, and concerned parents about, you know, what's the safest laxative to use? You know, I, it's, it's, there's no good way to kind of clean out the colon without washing out some of the bacteria that's supposed to be there. And I do think that uh, probiotics could be used, you know, after cleansing to kind of repopulate it. But we're definitely disrupting the, the microbiome um, by withholding poop and also by cleaning it out. So I think it's tough. Yeah, you definitely see the dysbiosis of, you yeah. know, the, the gut flora for sure. Um, so you're cleaning this out. I mean, I think that that's how you feel like it's really important to, to restore tone. And I'm totally on board with you. I agree with you hundred percent. And I feel the same way. I've been able to clean up a lot of old school UTIs, um, and other issues, bedwetting by actually treating the gut, which is interesting. Um, but I would also say, so you're starting to do this based on enemas, laxatives, like how are you going about potentially cleaning this out? So I, I try to cater it to what the families are comfortable with. Um, if they're in, if it's a motivated family and the child's um, old enough to understand that this is what's going on and they want to get better, then I do push enemas to start off with. I think it's the best way to get um, the end of the colon, which is what I'm concerned about, empty. Um, but there's no, it's interesting, I've been doing this for a while now, there's no like perfect um, solution, right? You know. I've done a lot of osmotic laxatives like Miralax and Laxlose. I've done a lot of stimulant laxatives now like X-Lax because I've talked to a lot of the GI doctors and, and they're pretty comfortable using those in high doses. And I've done a lot of enemas and I think enemas are best, but every kid's different and not every enema is perfect. And I do think I am agnostic in terms of how they get empty. I'm happy to use anything that works, um, but you do need to check to make sure they're getting empty if they're not getting better. So I, I've really shortened the amount of time but I wait to see if they're getting better. So, because a lot of people, at least in my in my field, will say, you know, it's going to take years to resolve. I really look for progress within a week, uh, a month. And if we're not seeing differences, then I X-ray them if they're available, and then modify the program if they're not getting empty. Because you would be amazed at how much, you know, enemas and laxatives I've given a kid, and their X-ray looks no different. It like blows my mind. Wow. And are yeah. these? I mean, in in a in a kid like that. I mean, how severe are their symptoms or is it, does, is it graded? Like, does it matter how constipated they are to how severe their symptoms are? Have you seen a correlation to that degree or? No, no, it's a good point. No, I, I, they're just kind of full basically. And the interesting thing is when I look at the x-rays and I've, we've published this, is that the poop is piled up in two places primarily. One is the rectum and one is the right colon. So it's not usually the whole colon. It's, 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 and it, it makes sense to my brain. We've got 
explains it that way, that they hold the poops at positive at the end, obviously, but then it probably messes up the peristalsis like downstream and then the right colon stores poop, which is, turns out not normal. You're not supposed to have poop in the cecum either. And so that's what we see, but I can have a kid that's just wetting the bed or I have a kid, you know, wetting the bed, peeing themselves while awake and pooping on themselves and the x-rays can look similar. So I haven't really been able to say um, if, you're, if they're this dilated, it's worse. I, I basically say, you're having accents, okay. Are you dilated? Yes. And go from there. Um, and then it's interesting too that, and this must be just how, how people are made, their genes are different. Some kids will be really backed up and just have poop accents, right? That's usually my last, um, this last symptom we'll see if they're wetting as well. So they have no bladder symptoms at all and just be pooping themselves. And other kids will have, you know, bed wetting, day wetting, and poop accents in terms of severely constipated. But I, but I tell everyone, and I'm a believer, that when you're pooping on yourself, that's kind of end stage. That's you're, you're as backed up as you're going to get. And it makes sense because poop is just falling out. Um, you can't control it. Literally. Yeah. Got nowhere um, else to go, yeah. And I want to make sure we make this point clear, you know, because this is a lot of um, – patients or moms or, or whatnot listening to this. And so I think some people are going to say, even though this makes sense to you and I, how is being backed up in your colon going to cause accidents? Would you mind just talking about the anatomy a little bit and how that's creating and causing that? Yeah. And so this is, you know, I'm trying to I didn't fully understand this even when I started, right? So because the, our teaching, and, and it would take, a, you know, hours to explain, like, all the theory behind it. But what, so way back when, like when my, when I was a, a baby, they thought that kids had a blockage if they were peeing on themselves. They thought they had a, and you may have heard cases of this or had parents complain about this or, or bring this up. People still come in asking for this therapy. They thought there was a blockage in the urethra and that you would just dilate that and stretch out the bladder neck and they get better. And anecdotally, that had some benefits. And um, we can talk about why that may have helped. And then they, but they had no standardization about like how often or how much you should stretch them out. And then they started um, saying, well, you know, this blockage we're seeing, it's probably just a muscle that the kid is squeezing when they should be squeezing. So they said, you know, they have a, a dysenergic bladder function. They're, they're, when they're peeing, they're trying to hold it in and messing things up. So the standard of care has become biofeedback, and there's, and there's probably still a role for that. But the more I've gotten into this, I've realized that the bladder is a, just a side product of the colon function. So the bladder sits in front of the colon or the rectum, and then it's, that sits in front of the spinal cord. And the nerves that run from the spinal cord to the bladder, the control bladder function, go right around the rectum. And so my theory, and I'm pretty sure this is right, um, those nerves, when they're stretched, you get the response. And the best example of this would be Dr. O'Regan's paper. He basically he did it great in the 80s. He took kids with dilated rectum, and he did urodynamics, which is a bladder test to show overactive bladder, and he proved that they had bladder spasms when they shouldn't have them. Then he cleaned them all out, made their rectum normal, and redid the urodynamics, and the urodynamics were normal. So we, we just took that finding and extrapolated it. So, so if, you can, if it can cause bladder activity when you're um, sleeping, they can cause it when you're awake, and so we've kind of adapted that to all kids. And I used to think that these kids, you know, okay, they're constipated and they get this nerve response, um, which I explain sometimes is like a, a real estate problem, like you got all this poop, the bladder doesn't really fit, but that's really not what's going on. It's more of a nerve issue. But I thought, okay, they have that problem and they also maybe don't pee on time because every mom says they come in and they're just, you know, wait till last minute to pee, wait till last minute to pee. 
but I've had a few kids to where like I couldn't get them empty or whatever, and I couldn't uh, get their colon fixed, and so you know they failed all medicines and they're miserable. And I've just Botoxed them, which is a whole other discussion, but I put Botox in the bladder, and their habits completely normalized. Like they pee completely normally. So this, and and that combined with the fact that if you have a kid that's peeing on themselves, you would think that making them pee more often would help. Pee every hour or every two hours. And that never helped for me. I realized that this is not even a bladder issue. Once the bladder's working okay, the kids do fine. They pee just like we do. It's that the signal's coming out of the blue and with high urgency from the colon. And that model is the only thing that fits everything I see. Because if you have this colon doing that, the kids can't pee on time. They, they rush the bathroom. But when you get rid of it, the symptoms go away. And not only that, but if I was able to block those signals immediately, like I do with Botox, the signals go away. And so all the behavior component um, is really, I think, overblown. And I'll joke with parents. I'll say, you know, go home and try to pee on yourself. Like, hold your pee till you pee on yourself. It's impossible because the urge is so great, like your body makes you go to the bathroom. And so only when that's thrown off uh, out of whack do kids have accidents. And, and generally, most of the time, you are not having to do Botox injections. Again, this is coming really down to emptying the colon to stabilize exactly. the nerve roots. I've got like a, a four-step thing I follow through, and, I, and number one is the bowels, and I work on it. And some people, you know, they don't have the, the finances, the resources, or the ability to, you know, to get, it, it's a big deal to buy and to administer enema every night to kids. And, and even if we do the Miralax program, um, that's a lot of work, and, and, and some parents you know, just don't have the resources to do that. So if they don't have that, um, then I'll go through some oral meds that are an option, which they're about 30% effective. They're not great, and I, I honestly think they're just not good at blocking the nerve roots, and Botox is much better. So I'll offer that just because if, if a kid is, you know, having a rough life and having accents uh, and their parents can't treat them the way we want, then I think that's a good way to kind of at least resolve the symptoms temporarily, and it does make them very happy. Great. I want to talk about some of the misconceptions. A lot of folks believe that uh, if their child is wetting themselves, it's a psychological problem. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, that's really, I think yes, that's a great point. So two things we have to make sure we make clear, and I don't know how to do that better than discussing it on podcasts or, or shouting from the rooftops, but kids do not typically have accents on purpose. And there's a pretty significant abuse problem with that. I think it's a major cause of child abuse. And I'm on like a, a Google News, you know, alert, and I get all the abuse uh, reports related incontinence, and they, I get one every week. And if you search the news, you would see like trials of, you know, child abuse and even murder of parents that were fed up with child having children having accidents. So for us to have that going on this day and age, I think the big failing on the part of physicians and society in general. So if we can get the message out that kids aren't having accidents on purpose and it's it's not their fault. That would be uh, number one. Um, number two, I think it's really overblown, and I see this online too, that if a kid's having was dry and they start having accent, that they've been abused or sexually assaulted, which I, I, I get that kind of stuff happens. You should take it seriously and make sure you know, but that's by far the minority. Most of the cases are they went to school and they just didn't like pooping at school because it was embarrassing or the bathrooms are dirty. And they just held their poop all day and they start having accent. So while I, I, I do know that sexual assault um, happens, whatever the cause of the child withholding, whether it was dirty bathrooms at school or just not wanting to go to the bathroom, or it could have been assault, the uh, cause
cause of the bladder of activity is withheld poop, and that's what you got to address um, while keeping all the other stuff in line. But I don't want a kid to be, you know, classified as an abused child just because they started having accidents. That's definitely not correct. What a great point. That's a great point you bring up. So um, what do you feel like are a couple things that maybe parents need to know or a couple take-home tips that parents can take home with this today? Anything? I think number one would be if a child's having accidents, don't explain it away, okay? If a child is uncontrollably peeing or pooping on themselves, there's definitely a reason. And that, <clears throat> that's probably what I'm talking about, but it may be something else, and you're not going to know unless you get it worked up. So don't let anyone tell you, oh, it's a phase, or they'll be dry when they want to. Peeing and pooping normally is like a physiologic process, like sleeping or walking or crawling. You didn't have to teach your kid to do these things. They did them normally, and so if they're not doing it, there's used to be a problem. So if a kid's not uh, staying continent, you would treat it like you would if a kid wasn't walking, you know, when they were supposed to. It's, a, it's an issue. And the other is that um, don't lose track when she probably trained of, of, of their bowel habits. You know, you want to keep track of if the child's going to the bathroom. You know, have it like as an open discussion. You want to have... Um, Topics on their diet, you know, you, you want to know what they're eating, you want to know if they're being active, you want to know if they're pooping and peeing. Um, the only time that gets kind of tough is early on, honestly, because, um, you know, like for infants, uh, the, what is a normal bowel movement? It's, I think it's very debatable, and I, I don't even know. I've wanted to do a study, like a breastfed infant, when are they getting backed up if they are? Because it could be normal for them not to poop for a while. But once a child's on a regular diet, they really should be going every day. So... The, the problem we see is this kind of backup of the poop sneaks up on people. And so the best thing I, I could say is just be aware, you know, be attentive, look for subtle signs, like we discussed, like large bowel movements, training the poop, and then don't be um, afraid to treat that when you see it and uh, treat it aggressively and early. Great. And do you believe any of these kids need behavioral therapy? Is that necessary? I, I don't really think so. I think um, some kids, so one of the, Side effects of not training early is that you get kids that just are happier pooping and peeing in pull-ups, and that's uh, something that, you know, I think it's a problem only because we make it a problem. Like It's not like they would be seven or eight in, in pull-ups because they would eventually, peer pressure would get to them. Um, but there's some kids where you have to, you know, I, I've had this experience where you're getting, you know, they're happy pooping in pull-ups, and they're almost four, and you got to get them pooping on the toilet, and you have to be a little aggressive and there's, there's ways to get that um, fixed. And then there are some pelvic floor training that I, I think are not um, the sole way to treat these problems, but can help um, because um, they've learned to tighten these muscles and they need to be learned to relax. They need to develop maybe some core strength and some um, just learn how to empty after maybe months to years of withholding. Um, there's some positional position changes that can be taught, you know, to sit on the right way on a, a potty with the feet elevated and so forth. I think there's some simple stuff, but I definitely don't think um, there's like a psychological condition that needs to be fixed typically in this, more of a just teach them the right way to go. That's great. And, you know, it brings up a good point. You know, autistic kids or children on the spectrum have a high incidence of this condition. Uh, kids with ADHD have a high incidence of this condition. But those conditions don't cause it, right? They're just associated. So if you have a kid on the spectrum or with ADHD, they're more likely to have these problems. But just putting them on Ritalin or, you know, whatever doesn't fix the problem. You, you, you fix their, their ADHD if they're on that or you treat that and then you address um, things, the accidents in the same way we've talked about for other children. Right. 
that's those are great tips. Um, anything that I didn't ask about that you think is important to add? I think um, there's a lot of debates on um, Miralax. You know, you probably hear about that. You know, whether sure. I'm safe. I, I don't know about any because um, for for us, like if a, if a kid comes in, she's my youngest as an example. She she was um, normally pooping, and then she started rice cereal, and she couldn't poop right, and so. I, I've seen too much of this stuff to let that sit, so I just started on Miralax, and she did fine. And so we use a lot of Miralax because it, it helps um, kids go. It's tasteless, it's potent, and it works. But, you know, people are worried about it. So I would not treat a child for constipation um, just because you don't like Miralax. I would find another uh, legitimate therapy. So I see a lot of people in mind struggling to get their kids to poop because they don't want to use Miralax. But they don't like ask their doctor for lactulose, so they don't use like a magnesium supplement. And I'm, I mean like a magnesium, a real therapy, because there's a lot of mag supplements that are low levels of magnesium. But you want to use something like magnesium hydroxide that actually makes you poop, you know, something that if you took, you would poop. Right. And so there's lots of things that, that treat kids. And so don't, don't be afraid to treat them. And then if you don't like Miralax, just find something else that a physician could prescribe or tell you about uh, or our website to tell you about to get them moving. What about one, the controversial topic of colon hydrotherapy? What's your take on that? Yeah, so yeah, I have a lot of people talking about that. You know, I think, um, again, anything that gets the colon empty, I'm all for, but you have to get it empty daily and have to stay empty. So a lot of people will say, you know, can we get my child just cleaned out once and then we'll be done? I'm like, well, I could clean them out, but then they wouldn't, I could put them in the hospital, you know, and put a tube down their nose and clean them out. But then they would go home and they wouldn't poop again until they filled back up because they wouldn't know they had to poop. So if people seem to have to like the idea of colon hydrotherapy and it makes them feel like it's maybe a healthier way to do it. But honestly, the less dwell time with the liquid in the colon, the better because um, you could put anything in the colon really short term. Like we have some enemas that use just tap water um, and they are safe because if water goes in and flushes out. If you irrigated tap water in the colon over long term, you would cause health issues with sodium levels and so forth. So I, I can't speak to hydrotherapy therapy, but if it was done with an isotonic fluid, meaning a fluid that was balanced for the body, theoretically should be fine. And if it helped them get empty, then so be it. Probably just time inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Great. Well, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Oh, yeah. So this is a, exciting because we have the website, uh, bedweddingandaccents.com. And since I've been treating these accidents, um, I've gotten more and more just functional constipation questions like, hey, my kid is six months old and they can't poop. And there's so little information about that. We're actually going to have a new book coming out, a pre-MOP book, because our therapy is called MOP. I'm going to do pre-MOP, and that should be coming out this fall. So hoping to help those parents and kids before these accidents will develop um, and kind of cut down on the issues in the future. And can you talk about the names of your books? Because I know you've written multiple. I read It's No Accident, um, but can you also name the other books? Because they're great. Oh, yeah. So we have It's No Accident, which is, I think, 2012. And that's when we first discovered these issues. And, and Dr. O'Regan's research, who's the guy that kind of pioneered this. And then we came out with the bedwetting and accidents aren't your fault because we were seeing so much blaming of the children, like we talked about, and abuse issues. So we wanted to make sure the kids and the parents knew that this was an accidental thing. And then we came out, we, we don't really own the rights to, the, to It's No Accident because it was a publisher. And so we wanted to get, we modified a lot of our therapy from It's No Accident to um, the modern day. And so we put out the MOP, the MOP book, which is, MOP stands for the Modified O'Regan Protocol. 
because O'Regan was seeing just bedwetters pretty much. Um, because he was a nephrologist, he kind of got into this by accident because his son was wetting the bed. And when we got into seeing, you know, severe cases with, you know, years and years of accidents, uh, pee and poop, we found that, you know, the, his short program, which is just three months, was not enough. And so we modified it a bit. Um, we also have a couple of uh, fun books. We have uh, Jane and the Giant Poop, which is just a, a rhyming book to get kids used to talking about poop. And then we're coming out with um, the pre-month book this fall. And they're all available on the website. So to be Awesome. This has been great information. Thank you so much for joining us here today. This was fantastic and sharing all your knowledge. If you want more information about our podcast, please check out fearlesshealthpodcast.com. And if you like what we're doing, please share it with your friends, rate us five stars and leave a comment below. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.